the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Some of you may recall the famous ABC's Wide World of Sports, which started off with those words, which first aired in the 1970s. The thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, as that was introduced by Jim McKay's voice that accompanied a montage of various athletes celebrating their victories. And throughout the years, as that show continued on and on, there were numerous athletes that were shown celebrating various victories, uh, winning a a race. Uh, But there was always one specific athlete that showed up. Some of you can even recall it in your minds right now. That was Vinko Bogota, a ski jumper from Yugoslavia, who fell over and over and over again down the hill as he was skiing at the World Ski Flying Championships in Oberstock, Germany in 1970. For us youngins in the room who, sorry to make some of you feel old, weren't alive back in the 70s to see those first broadcasts, we still know there's some familiarity with that image. Uh, We've heard that, that phrase, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. And we've seen that Bogota wipe out over and over again. For there's just something about, as McKay went on to state in the introduction, the human drama of the athletic competition. It captures our attention, doesn't it? We understand the thrill of victory. We get the agony of defeat. Even if you aren't a sports fanatic in here, maybe you've never played sports at all in your life, you understand that when you win, you're ecstatic. And when you lose, you're crushed. Well, for me, the reality of that statement came crashing down upon me my junior year of college. I was playing football for Maranatha Baptist University at the time, and I had started off as a freshman as third-string quarterback. Yes, third-string So, uh, there were two guys older than me, and a couple games into the season, the first string decided he would tear his ACL. Okay, now I'm second string, thanks to the torn ACL. Two games later, the next first string quarterback broke his leg during a game. Guess who gets signed up now to get injured uh, this year? Last two games, I was able to start. Thankfully, didn't get injured. Uh, And then the next year, going into my sophomore year, I redshirted. But my goal was, because during those years, football was my life, my goal was starting quarterback. I, that was what I set my uh, goal upon, and that's what I was going to work towards. In my junior year, finally those two guys were off, off the stage, and I had the chance to be starting quarterback of our football team was in a competition with a freshman that came in, and so we're going back and forth. Well, the first game, I got the call. Starting quarterback and the thrill of victory. I'm feeling it. But coach then told us, you're going to go various series, all right? You're going to play the first series, Dan, and then we'll let the other guy come in, and we'll go back and forth. We'll see during this season how, uh, who really steps up to be the starting quarterback. Thrill of victory, okay, I can, I can still make this happen. Well, The second series that I was in, fourth and one happened, and coach decided to call a quarterback sneak. So I did the quarterback sneak, but the sneak didn't happen all that well because I met the linebacker head on and dislocated my left shoulder, meaning I was done for the game and then also out for the another six or seven games uh, and obviously lost the starting uh, quarterback position. 
In that moment, I felt the agony of defeat. For me, dislocating my shoulder crushed me. I mean, football was my life, and I struggled big time in those moments. I had experienced the thrill of victory, and now defeat. I wasn't prepared for this, and I also wasn't prepared for what God was going to do in my life through that injury. You see, as I said, football was life, which also meant football was my idol. It was what I was worshiping, and God used that season of agony to lead me to repentance, to lead me to let go of that idol. Well, here in Psalm 60, we actually find David and the entire nation of Israel in a similar situation. No, they're not on the football field, but they've just experienced the thrill of victory. For as the inscription above this psalm notes, David has struck down 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, a battle recorded for us back in 2 Samuel, where we read in 2 Samuel of David's victorious campaign throughout the region over and over again. In fact, if you would, just take a moment and turn back to 2 Samuel and look at chapter 8 with me. Notice what is said here about this thrill of victory that David and the nation is experiencing. Starting in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 1, it says, After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methic Amah out of the hand of the Philistines, and he defeated Moab. And he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became the servants to David and brought tribute. And David also defeated Hadadazar, the son of Rehob, and king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadazar, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. And then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus. And the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Now we can continue on and we can actually read the story of the battle at the Valley of Salt. And again, we see at the end of verse 14, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And it appears to us from this account and then also from the inscription here in Psalm 60 that things are going pretty well for David. But did you notice, as Jamie just read, the difference in tone in this psalm? It doesn't really sound like the thrill of victory, does it? It sounds more like the agony of defeat. And so what's, what's happened here? What's happened in the midst of this thrill of victory? Well, I'm glad you asked because I had the very same question as I began my study in this passage. And here's what I found with, of course, some help from some of my commentator friends. What has happened is that in the middle of all the victories David has been accumulating, the foreign powers that he's been against have brought about some alliances against David and Israel. And it seems to be in this situation, while David is gaining ground against the Edomites, their ally comes to attack from behind. So David and Israel are in the middle of this battle and are beginning to lose ground and defeat seems inevitable. Thus, this psalm is, you could say, a prayer of desperation in real time. As one pastor said, it's a flare prayer. That is, here in this psalm, we overhear David's plea for help from God in the middle of the battle. 
And yet, as we hear this desperation in David's voice, we already know the outcome, don't we? The inscription tells us the outcome. It's a prime example of a spoiler alert. And yet this spoiler has a purpose. Did you notice it? Again, it's in the inscription. Instruction. To teach us. Dr. Jim Hamilton, in his commentary on the Psalms, notes, the superscription thus intends to instruct us by relating the crisis and the victory before presenting to us the cry of distress. And so we approach the psalm knowing the outcome of the prayer. God granted David's request and gave him the victory, knowing that, Hamilton says, we then work through David's fears, his anxieties, and theological questions. So you see, this psalm is meant to instruct not only the Israelites, but also us today. For just like David and the Israelites, you and I are often to tend Uh, tempted to look around us, aren't we, in the middle of distress. We look around for some sort of relief from our current situations instead of looking up for help. I mean, we want quick fixes to our problems, don't we? We want a swift removal of all the hard things of life. But that's not what God promises us. God doesn't always promise to remove us from our seasons of suffering. But what he does promise us is to be with us through it. And so you see, church, here in Psalm 60, we come to find this breathtaking truth, this soul-reviving truth, and that is in the midst of the agonies of life, our hope rests in the truth that God is fighting for us. In the midst of the agonies of life, no matter how big or how small they may be, Our hope rests in the truth that God is fighting for us. But Dan, you might say, I'm not in the middle of a battle like David. And the reality is, I don't think most of you are going to go home this afternoon and you're going to go sharpen your sword for some physical battle that you're about to happen, uh, take place this week, are you? I mean, you're not going to go look for your shield, uh, your spears, your helmets, and, and be ready for battle. Now, some of you teachers may be thinking you're doing that for this week. But the situations we find ourselves in are far different uh, from David. And so we read this and go, okay, that's good for you, David. We know there's a battle that you're facing, but that's somewhat different from where I'm at. And yet, the truths we overhear in this psalm about God are immediately applicable to our situations in life, no matter what situations we find ourselves in. For as Derek Kidner writes of this psalm, it's no museum piece, but a forceful message to every generation. And so I believe each and every one of us, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, can lean forward intently to hear from God and what he has to say through this psalm, knowing that his word is profitable for our instruction knowing that it is profitable for our reproof, for our correction, and for our training in righteousness, so that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. So to that end, notice with me here in this psalm the posture of repentance and faith that David has as he looks up to acknowledge in prayer the truth about God's involvement, his presence in our current circumstances. David begins this psalm of instruction by acknowledging the discipline of God here in verses 1 through 3. 
while the battle David wages is plainly against Edom, he understands that the circumstances he finds himself in, their impending defeat, has a greater author. You see, David recognizes that it is God's sovereign hand that is against them in this moment. He has rejected, broken them in his anger. He has made the land shake. He has torn it open, David says. It's the, he is the source of its trembling. He has brought about this difficulty in their lives and has caused the people of Israel to stagger. This picture that David paints here in these first three verses is not hopeful at all. So again, there, there seems to be some confusion from what we read in the inscription to the tone here. These seven successive verbs reveal a situation that is traumatic, even disastrous. Even more, the fact that David is acknowledging that this is all God's doing is even more startling for us as we read it. Like Psalm 58, as Nathaniel pointed out, this is a psalm that we are immediately uncomfortable with. We like Psalm 8 and Psalm 23, where we can praise God for the beauty of his creation and know that he is our shepherd. And yet when we come to Psalm 60, we hear he's rejected. He's made people see hard things. I mean, immediately that first phrase, you have rejected us, that alone is enough to make us want to skip over Psalm 60 and go right to 61 to say, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you. When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't like to be rejected. I want to be accepted. But David here is relentless. It's not just rejection, but it's brokenness, anger, trembling, staggering. I mean, these are difficult cards to be dealt, aren't they? Especially from the hand of God. But notice, again, throughout this psalm that there's no sign of complaining here from David. No, that's not at all the tone in these first three verses. Again, as Jim Hamilton notes, David is not responding to this by charging God with unfaithfulness, for he knows God is faithful even when his people are not. And David's tone here is not accusative, rather it's affirmative. He's saying, yes, this is the case, and we deserved it. He's acknowledging that in these difficult times, they are from God's hand because of their wrongdoing, because they have failed to keep their eyes on God. And we also notice here, there's a clear end in sight for these difficulties, did you see the aim of these difficulties? It's right there at the end of verse 1. Restore us. David affirms the rejection, the brokenness, the anger of God, and yet he cries out, restore us. Because here's the reality. God brings about this discipline in order to restore his people to himself. Now the prophet Jeremiah reveals the same truth as he speaks on behalf of God to the people of Israel in chapter 3 of his prophecy. He states, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. The writer of Hebrew also acknowledges the good purposes of God's discipline when he writes in chapter 12 and verse 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful 
rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. For those of you who are parents in this room, you know this from experience, maybe even experience this week in your household. As a matter of fact, I had this very conversation with one of my kids this week, and so I won't mention who to protect the innocent, I mean the guilty, but we had to sit down and we ha- I had to explain to them how I don't particularly enjoy having to tell them over and over and over and over again that they are not to do this. And that's for some reason they keep forgetting and forgetting and forgetting and forgetting again and again. And so because of their failure on their part, there is going to be the necessity of discipline. Not because I hate them and want ill for their lives, but because I love them and I want them to be restored. I want their good in this moment, that they need to stop what they're doing because I've told them over and over again. Discipline is never fun. In the moment, it is painful, but when it's done in love, and again, that's what we see here in Psalm 60, it's for our good. David understands this. David humbly acknowledges it. He looks up to God, and with a true heart of repentance, he acknowledges that the discipline that has come to them by God's hand is absolutely necessary in order to lead them back to God. You see, friend, I don't know your current situation. I don't know if the difficulties you are facing are because God is bringing discipline into your life, but they may be. I don't know. And so I still have to ask you this. What is your posture towards the discipline God brings? Like David in this psalm, are you willing to humbly acknowledge it and seek the good end that God has in mind here? That, he would be rest- that you would be restored to him? This is what David acknowledges at the outset of this psalm. But having acknowledged that the discipline they are experiencing is from God... He continues with an acknowledgement of the deliverance of God in verses 4 and 5. The deliverance of God. Knowing that the end goal is restoration, David makes a rather quick turn here into verse 4 from a posture of repentance in verses 1 through 3 to this posture of faith in the present activity of God. And once again, this is where this real-time nature of this psalm comes to light. It's almost as if David has begun to see the tide change in this battle. What seemed to be their imminent defeat now doesn't seem so imminent. Maybe they're gaining more ground against the Edomites here. Look at verses 4 and 5. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, that your beloved ones may be delivered, give salvation by your right hand, and answer us. There is a place for the Israelites to run to for protection and salvation, David exclaims. And once again, notice that it is the hand of God. Oh, what a a paradox this seems to be, though. I mean, from the same hand comes both discipline and deliverance? I mean, can it really be? I love how, again, one commentator answers this seeming tension here in these verses by saying, this is a bigger God than many people are disposed to believe in. 
but by the same token, a God worth praying to. If he set up the whole Edomite operation, he can close it down when it, is, when it has achieved its aim. Now, perhaps in this specific situation, David and Israel's sin was that of self-trust, and now they have repented. They've acknowledged their need for restoration, and God shifts the momentum in their favor. Or whatever the case may be, what David proclaims in these verses is rooted in the promise-keeping nature of God. For notice, once again, the beginning of verse 5, how David refers to himself and to the people of Israel, your beloved ones. Derek Kinder notes that the Hebrew word here belongs to the language of love poetry and it appeals to the, the strongest of bonds. And as such, this designation would hearken back to Exodus chapter 19 where God is speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai and he's sharing his love for the people of Israel. He has just, they have just been protected from all the plagues in Egypt. They've now been delivered from the hand of the Egyptians through the crossing of the Red Sea, and we hear these words in Exodus 19. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, my beloved. You see, what David is rehearsing here in these words, in the middle of this battle is the covenant promises of God to his people, that they are his beloved ones. Not because they've done anything. No, they've deserved the discipline. But yet, because of his sovereign choosing, they are beloved. In other words, David is appealing here to God to act in accordance with his own word and his heart for his people. And notice how there's a certain boldness to David's appeal here. Answer us. Now, this, again, is a boldness rooted in the covenant love, promise-keeping nature of God. David knows God is ultimately for his people in both the discipline and the deliverance. And so David's faith, established in the past activity of God, has given rise to a boldness in prayer that's actively trusting in the present activity of God. Is that the case with our prayers? Is that the case in the midst of the struggle that we are going through? That your prayer is established in the past activity of God that has given you boldness and trust in the present activity of God? Oh, that we would be a people who would exemplify such faith in our prayers. That we would cry out, answer us, we know you are for us, God. And yet in the midst of this struggle, Whatever I'm going through, I feel like you're far away, yet I know I am your beloved. As we continue on into verses 6 through 8, we observe a third truth that David acknowledges about God's involvement in our circumstances. And that is the dominance of God. Not only the discipline and the truth that there is deliverance, but notice here in verses 6 through 8 how as one again author said, God dominates over the entire scene. Having made this bold appeal to answer us, David now declares, God has spoken, and he has spoken in his holiness. With exaltation, I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Succoth. 
Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe, over Philistia I shout in triumph. Did you hear it? Did you hear the authority and the power that rests behind these words from God? God's utter dominance is over all the nations. They are his, and he will do with them as he pleases. Three times we hear this refrain, is mine. Three more times we hear, is mine. What is abundantly clear here, as Abraham Kuyper has so profoundly stated, is that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's all mine. And oh, what assurance this brings to us in the agonies of life. When it seems like everyone else has control, but I don't, we hear the cry of God. It's mine. And that's exactly David's point here. The Israelites feel like their defeat is certain. Even though they know there is a glimmer of hope and deliverance. And so David reminds them who it is that is on their side. It's the one that declares over all things, over all nations, even the nations that are attacking them in this moment, they are mine. I mean, you talk about a warrior cry. Braveheart's freedom has nothing on this. God has spoken. And his holy word declares not only Israel, but all nations are under his complete control. And he triumphs over any of them with just a word. Psalm 2, David shares this similar refrain where he states, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying... Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Listen to this. Here, God exalts in the holiness of his word. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You see, based again on the past activity of God, David knows the dominance of God over all his enemies, even the ones he is currently fighting He sees the discipline. He knows the deliverance. And yet he knows that God is dominant over these nations, which then leads us to the final verses. And the fourth and final truth that we see here in this psalm, as David acknowledges that God is involved in the the circumstances that he currently finds himself in because he is dwelling with them. The dwelling of God with us. And once again, at the outset, This seems to be another paradox in this psalm. I mean, why would the one who is sovereign over all things, dominating all nations with just a mere word, why would he stoop so low to dwell with unworthy sinners? But in essence, this is the question David is asking here when he says, who will lead us? Who will bring me to the fortified city? Have you not rejected us, O God? 
You see, David knows his unworthiness. He knows the people of Israel are totally unworthy of God's presence. They have rebelled against his good, right, and perfect ways. And so they are rightfully objects of his wrath. They aren't worthy of his special love or even the presence that he would bring to deliver them. And knowing this full well, David, though, cries for help once again. He knows that any help from mankind is worthless. It's in vain. And so there's nowhere else to turn. Instead of looking around for help, he looks up. He looks up and he remembers this truth that God fights for his people. With God, verse 12 says, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Oh, this is good news, isn't it? In the midst of the agony of defeat, David rehearses the truth that God is still with his people. He promised to be there, and so he is. He dwells with them on the mountaintops, the thrill of victory, but also through the valley and the agonies of defeat. David declares it this way in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. You see, church, what David is doing in this moment is preaching this truth about God to himself. He's instructing the nation of Israel to preach this truth to themselves as well. This is the good news that God is with them and he fights for them. You know, in the difficulties of life, we listen to ourselves a lot, don't we? We wake up in the morning and for some reason we have aches and pains. We hurt ourselves in the middle of the night sleeping and we're like, What's going on here? We, we look at our, our, our phones and we see a text from a family member and we're discouraged immediately. The anxiety starts to build in the moments of life. We don't understand what's going on and we listen to ourselves over and over again and yet David here in Psalm 60 reminds us that we need to preach to ourselves. Preach the good news of who our God is and that he fights for us. You see, church, this same good news is what we preach to ourselves in the midst of the seasons of agony. We preach that our hope rests in the truth that God is fighting for us. And how do we know this? How do we know that he is fighting for us? We know it because his son, Jesus, came to dwell among us. As unworthy, rebellious humans as we are, he came in the flesh to take upon himself the discipline that we ultimately deserve because of our rebellion and sin. Jesus became the object of God's full and furious wrath to the point that he himself staggered. If you remember, as he looked into the cup in that garden, crying out for another way, as he looked into the wine of God's wrath against mankind, he pleaded, is there any other way? And yet, his plea was met with silence. And so he drank it all. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 
You see, friends, Jesus went to the cross to deliver us from our self-trust and in doing so became the means of our salvation. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us back to God, to restore us to God. And yet he did not stay dead, but triumphed over the grave, showing the utter dominance over all things, even life and death. So the Apostle Paul will say to the church in Rome, we know that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. You see, here's the good news. He has fought for us and he has won. That is good news. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Church, this is the good news that we acknowledge in the midst of our struggles. When that day starts, And it seems to roll downhill very quickly. Instead of looking around us for changes in our circumstances, we can look up and know with God, we shall do valiantly. For what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Oh, oh no. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, the thrill of victory or the agony of defeat, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This, this is where our hope rests. God fights for us. And he's, oh, he's already won. So Father, We need this truth in our lives this morning. We need to know the truth that you are sovereign over all, that you dominate the scene, the scene of our lives, the scene of our nation, and of this globe. We need this truth to be prepared for the agonies that we are about to face or the agonies that we are currently facing, or perhaps even the agonies that we look back to in life and we wonder why those things took place. God, we know in all things you work together for our good. And so would you, through your word, do your work of shaping and molding us to be people cry out in faith that we know that we can rest in you, God, that you're fighting for us. You've already won. So so no matter what comes our way, you're there. You're present. 